This podcast is a collaboration between Costard and Touchstone Productions and the Dads from the Crypt podcast. Hi, I'm Alan Katz, and welcome to episode 10 of season one of the How Not to Make a Movie podcast. Ah, hell. Now I've gone and given away the ending. If this is season one of the How Not to Make a Movie podcast, that means there must be a season two in the offing. And yes, there is. But we'll get to those gnarly details in a bit. First, I need to take care of a few last pieces of old business. As I hope the rest of season one demonstrated, while the movie business attracts dangerously larger than life people like Joel Silver, it also attracts remarkable craftspeople like Greg Melton, Crypt's amazing production designer, Todd Masters, our master of makeup special effects, Ed Tapia, our salamnic problem solver's problem solver, Randall Thropp, our movie-loving wardrobe lord, and Victoria Burroughs, our casting guru. One of the things I most wanted to capture in the podcast was a first-person account of what happens when good craftspeople's craft turns to crap. On Crip, we worked with the very best composers in Hollywood, including Oscar-nominated Michael Kamen. Michael worked a lot for Joel, and he did a few episodes of Crypt, including one that Gil and I wrote and that Gil directed. Death of some salesman. The story's about a con man, Ed Begley Jr., who rips off rural rubes by selling them non-existent cemetery plots. He meets his match, though, when he tries to con a family who hate salesmen and kill every single one of them that comes to their door like Ed just did. The whole family is played by Tim Curry. He's amazing as Ma and Pa, but he's really amazing playing the family's horribly deformed daughter, Winona, who salesman Ed tries to seduce. Their bizarre sex scene is the story's, um, climax. Ed's words of love aren't enough. He needs to show he loves Winona. Ed's off-screen erection in the offing becomes a matter of life and death. The scene needed a score. Bill I had this idea, and I went to Joel, and, you know, I said, look, I... You know, is there any chance Michael? Now Michael had scored one of our tales from the crypt. He scored yes, and I I I remember he he scored a death of some salesman. Yeah, and I I remember we'll 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 digress for a second here. I remember going and and listening to his the first his the first pass of his score for death of some salesman at Dave Stewart from the Arrhythmics House. Right, and we sat in right. his studio and we and we sat there. And we listened to Cayman's first pass, and most of it was good, but there was one scene that he got completely wrong. He got one, it was the sex scene. He got it diametrically wrong. He played the joke. Mm-hmm. He went right at it and he played the joke. And I remember watching the look on your face as, as <laughs> you played, it was like, oh my God, what the fuck? How do I tell him this is horrible? Well, two things about, two, two, I, I remember vividly two things about that, that, that session. First of all, I couldn't believe we were in this house yeah. with <laughs> guys listening to movie the music for our movie. That was the first thing that got to me. The second thing that got to me, and I remember hearing the music for that scene that you're referring to and thinking to myself, this is awful. But how do I tell Michael Kamen, especially in front of his best buddy, whose house were out that I don't quite like it. And Michael, so, and, and Michael, the whole is looking at you because I think he really felt like this is, this was, this was the, 
the creme de la creme. This was the yeah. crowning glory of, yeah. of the whole thing that he'd done. And he's looking at you for your reaction. And man, man, and I and I, I remember watching you thinking, I know how you're reacting. You're <laughs> reacting exactly the way that I'm reacting. But you know, to Michael, to Michael's credit, he really was fine with it. You know, once once I sort of expressed my feeling about it. Well, we understood it completely. He understood it completely and and totally threw it out and totally said, oh, no, that's all wrong. Yeah, you're absolutely no, right. No, no, no. He, and, and he totally realized, yes, you don't play the joke. You know, yeah, go and against then, and play then, the emotion. And then I felt badly because I felt here's this huge guy. And, you know, we're making an adjustment from what he did and he's agreeing to it. So now I felt a little bit badly that I didn't like his version of it. But be that as it may, he changed it. And, you know, Michael... Michael became a good friend, you know, for many, many years. Um, I spoke to him probably within a month, you know, before he passed. And, you know, we, we were talking about doing other things and we were also just, we just had become kind of friendly. I wouldn't say we were best buddies, but, you know, we were friendly towards each other and I would call him once in a while or he would call me or I'd meet him for a coffee. You see, kiddies, honesty is the best policy. While we're talking death of some salesmen, that was an especially busy episode for Todd Masters. He had to create three distinctly different looks for the three characters Tim was playing, and each appliance required time to apply and remove from Tim so that we could use it again. So, of course, there's a story. What other things that you did during your crypt years do you look back on and you say, oh, that was a great piece of work, man. That was what are you proud of. So hard to look back at that stuff because it's all so rough. It's it's it was film school for me. I mean, huh. I had certainly done a lot of work around town, but uh, I had not handled a television series of that caliber. You know, making age makeups in a weekend and mm-hmm. make heads in three days, and I mean, it was just all the time. We we actually had a couple different labs at the time to manage it. We had one uh, when I was in Santa Monica. We had a lab there. Uh, a little room just to kind of grab actors a second right, they right. show up and you know they'd go through costumes for whatever reason before us and so we would just grab them in the hallway and um but yeah we did so much work it's funny that that stuff i'm kind of glad it's only on dvd because that work is so rough <laughs> and it's sort of the charm of the show you know the show kind of has a little rough feeling to it the the performances are rich but they're kind of performances you know that most actors are just kind of uh, daring themselves to do, you know? And so- Yeah, it was, it was, it was fun. It was, you were there. Yeah. It was, was, yeah, it was over the there top. for the money. <laughs> you know? The chance that sometimes to do stuff that you, you wouldn't get to do right. anywhere else. Yeah, totally. You know, and we, we, we used it, you know, on the effects end, we used it as kind of a, a trial ground to try new crazy ideas. We developed all sorts of stuff on that series that, you know, some of it's even in Bordello of Blood of all places, but you know. It's I just- remember, uh, God, Ed Begley Jr., who, you know, I think he, he'd never played anyone rotten. And, and he got to play someone rotten when he did Tales from the Crypt, the, the, uh, the uh, Death of Some Salesman episode, which was another, you know, that was a, a big piece of work for, for you guys, having to, to make Tim Curry look like the three members of this family. And another Gill episode, another directed by Gill episode. There you go. Yeah, no, that was, uh, thanks for reminding me. That was the kind of the age makeups and weekend kind of comment was, well, that. And we actually did a few shows that had progressive aging. And um, we <laughs> we had an AD on, um, on the one with Ed. 
uh, Lee Webb. He always talked like this. And uh, so I love Drill sergeant at heart. Total drill sergeant. I loved him, but he was a drill sergeant. And he really gave nobody any slack. Uh, If it was going to shoot Monday, you better have it ready Sunday afternoon. Um, And so when the whole aging and character makeup thing with the Tim Curry, uh, Death of Sib Salesman came up, we, you know, again, had this like no timeline. And I went to Leah and I said, look, you're, you got to tell me which series, you know, which day he's going to shoot, which makeup. Cause I've got to, I'm going to only have so much time. I have to prioritize making this one first. Cause it shoots first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he told me that, um, I think he told me that the, uh, the ugly, the ugly daughter was going to play first. And I said, are you sure? Like no rain cover switch outs or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, Friday night. Hey, uh, we're going to go for uh, some rain cover on Monday. <laughs> and it was now the mom character played, which we hadn't even started. And so we worked, you know, I don't think there was enough hours in the weekend to do it. And so I slept through my alarm clock Monday morning oh, man. Uh, to go to set. This is the first day of production to go to set to glue the mom makeup on Tim Curry. Fucking Tim Curry, right? And I sleep through the alarm. I wake up to Patricia on my phone machine going, hey, where the fuck are you? Blah, 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 blah. What was, our, was our second? Second AD. She was yeah. always up at the same hours. And so I what first... Was, do, you remember, do you remember Patricia's last name? I just worked with her, actually. Uh, she just changed her name, I believe. Uh, let me come back to you on that. Yeah, just like... Uh, I can barely remember my last name sometimes. If you um, I literally no. had to drive to the shop, pull the molds out of the oven because they were still baking. <laughs> drove to Santa Monica to glue them on and peeling them out, you know, out of the molds in the parking lot. Thank, thankfully they were fine. And there's Tim waiting probably like an hour or so for me. And uh, he was just totally a pro fine. Oh, he was wonderful. What a lovely man. What totally a lovely cool man. about it. Mm. And of course, Gil wanted to fire me, which he probably should have. Uh, but it was like, you'll never do that again, right? That was a great training ground. Like, you'll never make that fuck up again. Um, but, you know, sleep sometimes is necessary. I don't know. Not back then, but <laughs> I don't know how we did some of that stuff, Al. Looking back, Todd, I agree. How did we do it? Actors are all a little strange. I mean that in the nicest way possible. And yet, no. Sometimes their strangeness could get in the way of just doing a day's work. Christopher Reeve was a lovely, lovely person, nice as could be. It was heartbreaking when he got injured. Chris was part of our extended crypt family because he'd done Superman with our executive producer, Dick Donner. We wanted Chris for an episode of Crypt that Gil and I wrote called What's Cookin'? It's the meatloaf episode. Chris plays the hero, but he isn't playing Superman now, is it? Gil Adler again. So, you know, when we, when we wrote What's Cookin', uh, for H uh, for HBO for Tales from the Crypt, and I was going to direct that one. It was the first time I was directing a Tales from the Crypt, right? And uh, you know, I said to Donner, Donner said to me, "Who who do you who do you think who do you think?" And I think we had talked, and I had said, "Well, you know, Christopher Reeve is, would be great. I just don't know if he's going to if he would do it. I mean, he lives in New Hampshire or you know Massachusetts. I don't know if he'd come out here. Blah blah blah. Obviously, way way before the accident. And Donner said, oh, "If you want him, you can have him." I'll talk to him. And so we talked to him and, and he said, yeah, I'll do it. And I got on the phone with him and I said, you know, we did everything off of the phone. What do you want to wear? How do you want to wear it? What should you look like? Blah, 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 everything. So I felt when he came to, the, to, to join us, he, you know, he was part of the team. He was really with us. 
So the first notion I get that this isn't quite right is, you know, when we had spoken on the phone about what he would wear, um, you know, I said, well, I'm thinking maybe like a plaid flannel shirt. Does that work for you? Yeah, yeah. So now he's coming onto on the set and, and, and they're showing me his wardrobe before we get on. And he shows me, you know, one plaid shirt. I didn't really like the plaid shirt. It was very loud. And I thought, it had, I thought the camera would have problems with it. Yeah. I said, can you mute this down a little bit? He came back with another plaid shirt. And then he went, I said, this looks all right. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Then he went back into the dressing room and the wardrobe person came around and she said, he hates that shirt. I said, he just told me he liked the shirt. No, he hates that shirt. I said, well, what, is, what does he see himself in? He wants to wear a, a blue Oxford button down shirt. I said, oh, do we have one? Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, to me, the scene wasn't going to be about the shirt. <clears throat> so again, I let him do the shirt. Then we start shooting. <clears throat> and I notice every, every time I set up a shot, and we're, we do the rehearsal. He goes, I hate this shot. I go, what? I hate this shot. This is terrible. And I said, well, okay. Well, how, how, what are you thinking of? How, I don't know. You're the director. Why are you asking me that? I said, well, if you don't like what I'm suggesting, I thought maybe you, there's a reason behind it and you had, you had something, a reason why it could be better if it was shot this way or that way because we get this advantage. No, no, that's your job. I just don't like this. And for the first two days of shooting of the five days, every setup I, I would dread because I knew whatever I said, he hated. So at the end of, I think it was the, yeah, it was, it was middle of the second day, I was getting more and more pissed off at this mother. And so finally, and you know this, we never would say, let's all take five and go, go get a coffee. We never oh, stopped. Who had five? Right. And I did that. I said, okay, everybody yeah. off the set. Five minutes. Uh, I need to talk to you, Chris. And I and I and I went over to him. And I, as I was speaking, I was getting more and more animated and more and more in his face. And I said to him, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Obviously, I'm doing something very wrong because you don't like anything I'm suggesting, but you won't suggest what you want. I'm okay if you don't like what I say, but you have another alternative. And I could say, ah. Well, you know, that's a better thing, or we can combine them. No, you just don't like it. So I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but I'm really not liking this experience. And, I, and, I, and I'm almost spitting in his face. And I said, so, so I don't know what to do about you. You know, I really don't know how to, what to do about you, but I don't like this. From that moment on, and, and then I called everybody back when we started shooting. From that moment on, he only would call me boss, and he would only say, this is great. Whatever you want to do, boss, I'm good. I'm good. And the next three days were great. And we actually had some kind of a friendship when he ended the show. He, we, had, we had the friendship so, such that when he did have the accident, I called Dana and I asked how he was doing. And she told me how severe it was. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, can you just get, me a, get a message to him for me and tell him, I know it's not going to be this season. I know it's not going to be tomorrow, but when he's ready and if he wants to, I have a slot for him to direct an episode of Tales. And, you know, she started crying and I said, I mean, I remember it. that. And I said, you know, just tell him for me. Okay. Tell him we love him. 
And, you know, we have a shot, we have a spot for him to direct the Tales from the Crypt when he's ready. Um, and that was sort of one of the last times I really ever, you know, spoke to the family or, or spoke to anyone about him. But, you know, the, the arc of that relationship was really bizarre because on the phone when he was in New England, it was great. And then he came and he, and he, seemed, he seemed pretty good in doing prep. And then as soon as we hit the, sh the show, it was like, no, no, I don't like the shirt. No, I don't like this. No, I don't like the shot. No, I don't like what you're doing. And I was like, what the fuck is, you know, what, I wonder if that fuck? was his MO, you know, actors all have, you know, sometimes they, they'd like to, yeah, to maybe. push, push, push. And then suddenly yeah. when it snaps back, they go, oh, boundaries, happy, yeah. happy. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But it was a good lesson for me to learn. There, hey, at the end of the day, Painful as some some of those lessons Painful are, they they're be. all good lessons. <laughs> yeah, they're all good lessons. One last story about the showbiz sausage making factory that made Bordello of Blood the sausage that it was. Ed Tapia and Gil Adler. And it's it's funny, Alan, because that last job with Gil on Constantine is what made me want to go back to television. Because Gil, Gil, um, you know when when Gil had tough negotiations on that, they didn't want to pay your fee if I remember correctly. Right. And they, there were like seven, eight weeks out from shooting and they had a budget of like $110 million and they didn't want to pay Gil his fee. And ultimately they did. And we started shooting like seven weeks later with a budget that had gone from 110 to 92 million. Right. And it ended up costing them like 89. So it was the best deal Warner brothers ever made. Um, well, that, the story but, with that, the story with that is that, you know, Lorenzo called me and he said, um, we, we want to make this movie. Keanu, we have Keanu. He doesn't want to go back to Australia because that's where we wanted to make it. It's going to cost us $30 million more because of that. And uh, we have a budget of a, uh, that we've done in, in the studio. It's 109, but we're not going to make it unless it's, you know, uh, under 93. Can you do it? And I said, I, I don't know. You're asking the wrong guy. And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, you should be asking. Francis Lawrence was going to direct it. And they said, um, I said, you should call up Francis Lawrence and call me up, pull us into our, a meeting in your office and ask us together. Because I could tell you anything, but it doesn't mean anything if he doesn't understand or agree. So he said, well, would you work with him? I said, sure. So he paid me for two weeks of work. And I met with Francis every day. We went page by page to it. What's important to him? What's not important? What, and we, we started pulling things out. And within two weeks, we went from 109 million to 94 million. And I sent it to Lorenzo. And that night I got a phone call from Lorenzo going, what the fuck did you send me? I told you not a penny more than, uh, uh, not a penny over 93 million. And you sent me a budget of 94 million. I said, Lorenzo, it's been two weeks. I took it from 109 to 94. He goes, well, how can I believe that? And I go, well, that you should call us into the office. And he goes, well, I don't want to talk to anybody. I, this has to be under 93 million. So I said, well, I need to surgically do something to the script because up until now, I have not surgically done anything to the script because I don't give a shit what you do. Don't, you know, give me, so I call up, I go, well, you're gonna have to give me another two weeks with Francis because I got to go through it again. He goes, I'll pay you. I go through it again and we bring it down to $92 million. Mm -hmm. And we go, and, Fran, and, and Lorenzo calls me and he goes, I don't know whether to believe this or not. I don't know if this is real or not. And I said, well, I told you this before. Bring us both into the office, ask any questions you want, look into our eyes, you decide. Don't ask me to decide, you decide. And so that's what he did. We went into the office and he asks us you know, questions and 
you know, Francis and I were sort of answering. We knew exactly what we were talking about. We knew what we'd given up. We, we, he had agreed and we, we knew what we were doing. And at the end of the meeting, Lorenzo said, I'm going to green light the movie right now in this room. Go make the movie. And that's how Constantine got green lit by, by, uh, by, by, by Lorenzo. And then when we finished the movie um, and we did, we did a cut, I showed it to Lorenzo and he called me that evening and he said, what did you think of the cut? And I said, well, you know, it works. It, it, the story is clear. It's, it's all there. Personally, I miss the visual effects sequence, the fight the, uh, the, with the food. I thought it was kind of different and cool. Um, but, you know, it, you know I'm, not, I'm not advocating you put that back in. I, I miss it. You're asking my opinion. It works the way it is. It's your call. He goes, well, how much would it be to put that in? I said, it'd be, uh, be a million dollars. He goes, so, we, so instead of you coming in at 92, you come in at 93. And I said, right, which is the budget you originally said you had to have. So he goes, let me think about it. And two weeks later, nothing's happened. I get a call from Lorenzo's office saying, when is Lorenzo going to see the new cut? And I go, what new cut? And they go, you know, the new cut. And I go, no, I don't know the new cut. There is no new cut. We only have the old cut. No one's done anything. You better get Lorenzo to call me. I don't even know what the hell you're talking about. So Lorenzo calls me and I start yelling at him. Going, what the fuck is the matter with you? I thought I, thought, hey, I, thought I was going to hear from you. You ended it where you're going to think about it. You never called me back. Oh, I didn't call you? No, no, go ahead and do it. It's okay. <laughs> and so we, we, we shot another, I think about a week and put it back in and it came in at 93 million. So here's the deal about season two. For starters, I'll have company as host. My old creative partner, Gil Adler, is going to join me. That's happening because doing the podcast rekindled our relationship creatively and as friends, too. Hey, don't you love happy endings? I don't usually, but in this case, I'll make an exception. In season two of the How Not to Make a Movie podcast, our subtitle will be Horror Stories from the Movie Making Trenches. In other words, stories exactly like we told you about the making of Bordello of Blood, just not about Bordello. In season two, we'll get other filmmakers to tell their sob stories about what happens when good movie making gets ugly. Opening August 2022. We hope you'll make us a habit. See you then. The How Not to Make a Movie podcast is executive produced by me, Alan Katz, and by Jason Stein. Our artwork was done by the amazing Jody Webster, and Jason Jody, along with Mando, are all the hosts of the fun and informative Dads from the Crypt podcast. Follow them for what my old pal the Crypt Keeper would have called terrific Crypt content.